among some of the problems that can uh, compromise a, a survivor's ability to return to safety are uh, medical problems resulting from uh, parachute descent or evasion, landing, parachute landing and descent, or uh, extreme climate, ground combat, evasion, uh, illnesses, uh, captivity illnesses, and um, illnesses uh, from location. Uh, um, many evaders and survivors have uh, reported difficulty in treating injuries and illness due to the lack of training and medical supplies. And for some that uh, resulted in capture or surrender uh, as they weren't able to travel fast enough, um, evade fast enough. Survivors have related feelings of apathy and helplessness uh, since they're not able to treat themselves in their local environment, and the ability to treat oneself increases morale and cohesion and uh, aids in survival and eventual return to friendly forces. So I'm going to go over some basic survival medicine. Uh, just one person that has some basic medical knowledge uh, can make a real difference in in uh, the lives of, you know, a whole unit of people. Uh, without qualified medical personnel, um, it's up to each individual person to, to know what to do to stay alive. So the requirements for the maintenance of health are uh, water and food. Uh, you have to um, also have a, a personal hygiene standard. Uh, body loses water through normal body processes. That's sweating and urination and defecation. Uh, so during daily exertion, when the atmospheric temperature is 20 degrees Celsius, that's 68 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, the average adult body loses and therefore requires a replacement amount of two to three liters of water daily. Uh, other factors like heat exposure, cold exposure, intense activity, high altitude, burns, illness, those can all cause the body to lose more water, so then you have to replace that water. Uh, dehydration results from an inadequate replacement of lost body fluid. Uh, it increases efficiency um, to replace or the loss. Uh, dehydration decreases your efficiency, and it increases your efficiency to replace that uh, that water lost water content. Uh, if injured, um, dehydration increases susceptibility to severe shock. And uh, you want to consider the following results of body fluid loss. A 5% loss of body fluid results in just thirst and irritability, nausea and weakness. A 10% loss results in dizziness, inability to walk, tingling sensation in the arms and legs, uh, the limbs, and a headache. A 15% loss results in dim vision, uh, painful urination, uh, swollen tongue, numb feeling to the skin, deafness, and a loss more than 15% of body fluids results in death. Uh, the most common signs and symptoms of dehydration are dark urine with a very strong odor, a low urine output, dark sunken eyes, fatigue, uh, emotional instability, uh, a loss of skin elasticity, sort of a a wrinkling and looseness to the skin, a delayed capillary refill in fingernail beds, so a change of color uh, for black people, it's a darker color. For white people, it's a paler color. A trench line down the center of the tongue, a thirst, 
Uh, this is last on the list of uh, symptoms. Um, if you are thirsty, you are already already you've lost two percent of your hydration, and you're you're already dehydrated if you're thirsty. By the time you crave the liquid, you know fluids, you have already started your dehydration uh, loss, your loss of hydration. You've already started into the symptoms of dehydration if you are uh, responding to thirst. Uh, you replace water as you lose it. So trying to make up a deficit is difficult in a survival situation. And thirst is not a sign of how much water a person needs. So most people cannot comfortably drink more than one liter of water at a time. Even when you're not thirsty, you want to drink real small amounts of water at regular intervals each hour to prevent uh, dehydration. And if you're under physical or mental stress or you're subject to severe conditions, uh, you want to increase your water intake. Drink enough liquids to maintain a urine output of at least 0.5 liters every 24 hours. And in any situation where food intake is low, uh, you want to drink six to eight liters of water per day. Um, in an extreme climate, especially an arid climate, the average person loses 2.5 to 3.5 liters of water per hour, uh, depending on how much physical output you're, you're using. In this type of climate, a real dry climate, you should drink 14 to 30 liters of water per day. Um, don't overdrink. Uh, don't try to replace your your water amount by liters. Uh, if you encounter indicators that you are, um, you know, that you're, you feel full of water, you feel like you've had enough to drink, don't continue to force yourself to drink water, but continue to rehydrate rehydrate yourself with small sips of water across the, the uh, intervening hours between your next major water break. Uh, with the loss of water, there's a loss of electrolytes, that's body salts. Um, the average diet uh, can usually keep up with those electrolyte losses, but in an extreme situation or illness, an additional source needs to be provided. So a mixture of 0.2 a 0.25 a teaspoon of salt, a quarter teaspoon of salt to one liter of water provides a concentration of uh, electrolytes that the body tissues can really absorb. And nowadays you can get uh, little uh, pre-prepared uh, packets. They come in a little metallic packet uh, that's got an electrolyte mix. It's uh, like a hospital grade electrolyte mix that uh, you can mix in with water in small amounts. Uh, and this is really does help. Um, it helps alleviate uh, your symptoms when you're in a, in a starvation uh, situation. You haven't eaten for long periods of time or you have real minimal food intake and you also have a heavy dehydration uh, pressure on your, on your physical system. Uh, of all of the physical problems that are encountered in the survival situation, uh, the loss of water is the most preventable, usually. Uh, the following are, I'm going to give a basic set of guidelines uh, to prevent dehydration. You want to drink water when you're eating. Uh, 
the digestion process uses water to process the food. Uh, part of the digestion process is to um, mix the uh, food in the stomach and the acids in the stomach with uh, water intake to um, facilitate the chemical processes of of um, digesting that food. Uh, you want to acclimatize yourself if possible. Uh, your body performs more efficiently in extreme conditions when it's acclimatized. Uh, you want to conserve your sweat, not conserve water. So you want to reduce your physical activity in relation to your heat output and the external temperature, whatever your external uh, weather circumstances are. You want to limit sweat-producing activities, but, but drink water regularly and steadily. Uh, you want to ration water. Uh, until you find a suitable water source, the, you have, you're going to have to ration your water sensibly. Um, a daily intake of 500 cubic centimeters is, uh, is about the proper amount. Uh, 0 .5, li 0.5 liters of a sugar-water mixture, that's two teaspoons per liter, uh, will help prevent severe dehydration for at least a week, provided that you keep the water losses to a minimum by limiting your activity and uh, your heat gain or loss, if you can limit your heat gain or loss. Um, you can get those in a little sugar packet. You get a little packet that uh, replaces your... Uh, you can add to your water uh, from a little, it's a little aluminum packet of sugar water mix. Uh, you provide the water. Uh, you can estimate your fluid loss by uh, several means. A standard field dressing holds about 0.25 liters. That's one-fourth of a canteen of blood. So a soaked t-shirt holds 0.5 to 0.75 liters of liquid. Uh, you can use your pulse and breathing rate to estimate your fluid loss. Uh, with a 0.75 liter loss, the wrist pul pulse rate is under 100 beats per minute, and the breathing rate is 12 to 20 breaths per minute. And then with a 0.75 to 1.5 liter loss, the pulse rate is... 100 to 120 beats per minute and the breath rate is 20 to 30 per minute and with a 1.5 to 2 liter loss of water uh, the pulse rate goes to 120 to 140 beats per minute and the breath to 30 to 40 breaths per minute so the vital signs Above those rates require emergency medical care, advanced care. Uh, for food, um, you can live several weeks without food. Uh, you need an adequate amount to stay healthy. Uh, without food, your mental and physical capabilities deteriorate, deteriorate, deteriorate rapidly, however. So you'll become weak without food and uh, and less likely to uh, less capable of making decisions, less likely to be 
able to move, you become you become more torpid and less uh, less capable of of uh, putting out energy as you try to conserve energy due to your um, loss of caloric intake. Uh, food repl replenishes the substances that the body burns and provides energy for the person. Uh, it provides vitamins, minerals, salts, and elements that are essential to good health. So um, it's important to try to continue to eat even if it's just a very small amount, uh, you have one candy bar, a very small corner of the candy bar. This is difficult to do, but it does help. And uh, food helps morale. Uh, the two base, basic sources of food are plants and animals, including fish. As in varying degrees, both provide calories, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins that are normal. They're necessary and needed for normal daily bodily functions. Uh, calories are a measure of heat and of potential energy. Uh, the average person needs 2,000 calories per day to function at a minimum level. Uh, an adequate amount of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins without an adequate caloric intake leads to starvation and cannibalism of the body's own tissue for energy. So you want to avoid uh, forcing your body into a a circumstance of, of uh, total starvation where it begins to consume its own fat and once it goes through its own fat, it, it begins to burn its own muscle. So when it burns its own muscle, you get uh, um, you get uh, the um, reduced physical capability and skeletal look uh, that's often uh, exhibited by um, POWs. Uh, you, this makes it more difficult for you to to take care of things that you need to take care of, and uh, it makes it makes uh, escape and evasion more difficult. It makes survival more difficult in a in a survival situation. Uh, you want to try to preserve your muscle and some of your fat, and the way to do that is to keep some intake going, some caloric intake. Uh, so that your body doesn't feel like it has, like it only has one option, and that option is the one that it, the one that's keeping it going. Uh, plant foods; those, the plant as food provides carbohydrates. Uh, that's the main source of energy is carbohydrates. Um, for some people, it's uh, it's a uh, higher in protein. Uh, if you have a high protein requirement, uh, you're somebody that eats a lot of meat at uh, regular intervals, you have a low uh, vegetable or plant intake, and uh, you go longer on a, on, on a muscle um, energy, uh, and you are more susceptible to uh, your body going into a starvation mode and burning muscle. So you have to kind of work to keep up with uh, some kind of intake that uh, matches your protein requirements. Uh, many plants provide protein to keep the body at normal efficiency. Uh, soy is a good example of that. That's perhaps a little bit overused nowadays, but uh, it is a it does have protein in it and a number of um, legumes. That's 
beans and peas. Uh, plants don't always provide a balanced diet, uh, but they sustain a person even in the Arctic where meats, heat-producing qualities are normally essential. So plant foods such as nuts and seeds give you enough protein and oil for normal efficiency. And you can, those are easy to ration. Uh, you can, you know, you can eat one nut out of your handful of a hundred nuts, uh, you know, every 12 hours. And this is some intake that your body understands has carbohydrates, fats, and protein in it. And it, the body doesn't turn to burning its own, um, motor capability. Roots, green vegetables, and plant food contain natural sugar to provide calories and carbohydrates that give the body natural energy. Uh, that works better for some people than others. If you have a, some sugar resistance, um, you, don't, you don't burn plant sugar quite as efficiently as you burn. Uh, you don't burn it as easily and as efficiently as you burn um, sucrose, that's uh, processed sugar or, or uh, table sugar. Uh, sucralose is a more complex sugar that's, uh, the chemical formula for it is, is less efficient. And rather than providing uh, immediate um, chemical breakdown into energy, it, it provides a, um, a sort of a, a staggered breakdown of chemicals uh, for a long-term energy um, that works for really well for some people and not so well for other people. So it's something to keep in mind when you're in a survival situation is, you know, what is your, how does your body wor work with or perform under uh, the use of um, proteins, fats, carbohydrates, and sugars? And, and how can you um, use the natural environment to help you, even though it's very limited, you, you know, you're in very limited circumstances, uh, what, what works better for you than other things? One thing versus another thing, like beans and legumes work better for you than, um, taro roots and other starchy collectibles. Um, it helps you prioritize what foods you want to go after and what foods you want to save your energy on. Uh, the food value of plants becomes more and more important if you're eluding an enemy or if you're in an area where wildlife is scarce. So for instance, you can dry plants by air, wind, sun, or fire. And that, that retards spoilage so that you can carry or store the plant food with you when you travel and when you're in a, a escape and evade circumstance. Uh, and you can use those when needed. Uh, you can obtain plants more easily and more quietly than meat. And it takes less time uh, and less effort. Uh, often for meat, you have to construct some way to get that meat. Uh, whereas with a plant-based food source, uh, it's more just uh, gathering as you, you can continue 
your planned route of escape or your planned route of travel and still uh, collect food for the end of the day. Uh, it's extremely important uh, to remember to look at and pay attention to uh, your plant food source when you have you have to concern yourself with whether or not an enemy is near. Um, animal food is uh, food derived from uh, hunting, and it's uh, it's more nourishing than plant food. Uh, you may even be you may even find that that's more readily available in some places to to get uh, to hunt game or fish. However, to get meat, you need to know the habits of animals and, and aquatic life and how to capture uh, the various wildlife, capture and kill the various wildlife. Uh, to satisfy immediate food needs, you need to seek uh, abundant and easily obtained wildlife, such as insects, crustaceans, mollusks, fish, reptiles. Um, these are all somewhat contained or slower moving or uh, um, motionless and are they're easier to uh, collect and they can satisfy your immediate hunger while you're preparing traps and snares for larger game. Uh, another concern for survival situation is personal hygiene. Uh, in any situation, cleanliness is an important factor to prevent infection and disease. And uh, it's a good idea to just sort of pay attention to this sort of thing, uh, generally speaking, um, and to, you know, to notice uh, a healthy procedure when you're in extreme circumstances. Does the water look clean? Does it seem like it's clean or does it seem like it might be contaminated? Does it look contaminated? Does it smell contaminated? Does it seem like it's brackish? Is it cloudy? Is there anything that offends your sensibility of cleanliness? It helps if you have a personal hygiene standard to kind of help maintain that uh, sense of personal safety uh, where cleanliness is concerned and and um uh the reduction of disease mainly uh it becomes even more important in a survival situation and poor hygiene can reduce the chances of survival uh obviously a daily shower with hot water and soap is your ideal uh but you can stay clean without that you can you can use soap and water and uh you can rinse yourself if you don't have soap. Uh, you can make soap um, in a field circumstance, and you can also use some natural soap, which I'll go over a little bit later. Uh, you want to pay special attention to areas of concern, the feet, armpits, crotch, hands, and hair, as those are prime areas for infestation and infection. Uh, and if water's scarce, you want to take an air bath if possible. This is taking off your whatever clothes uh, you can and and letting your body and skin air out and your clothes air out. You expose your body to sun and air for at least an hour. Be careful not to sunburn. 
Uh, this works pretty well in hot, dry climates um, and does help keep your body clean. Uh, if you don't have any soap, you can use ashes or sand uh, in place of soap. Um, that includes on cleaning yourself, and you can clean equipment with that. Or you can make soap from animal fat and wood ashes, if your situation allows. I'm going to go over a method of making soap here. Uh, this is a field expedient way to make soap. You extract grease from animal fat. It's tallow. Um, by cutting the fat into small pieces and cooking them in a pot. Uh, when you you add enough water to the pot to keep the fat from sticking as it cooks, and uh, you have to cook it slowly and stir frequently. Uh, after the fat is rendered, you pour the grease into a container to harden, and then you place ashes in a container with a spout near the bottom, and pour water over the ashes, and collect the liquid that drips out of the spout in a separate container. Uh, the liquid that's that's collected in the container is uh, potash or lye. And another way to get lye is to pour the slurry. Uh, that's a mixture of ashes and water through a straining cloth. And then in a cooking pot, you mix two parts of your um, of your rendered grease and one part of your uh, dried potash. And then you place this mixture over a fire and boil it until it thickens. And uh, after that mixture cools, it's uh, that's soap. And you can use that in semi-liquid state directly from the pot, or you can pour it into a pan and allow it to, to harden and then cut it into bars for later use. And then there's some natural forms of soap also. I'll go over those in a different episode. Uh, you want to keep your hands clean. Uh, germs can infect food and, uh, and wounds. So you want to wash your hands after handling any material that's likely to carry germs. Uh, after visiting the latrine, after, this is a polite way for using the toilet, the toilet in the field. Uh, after caring for the sick, before handling any food, food utensils or drinking water. And uh, keeping your fingernails short and clean and keeping your fingers out of your mouth. So this is what I meant about if you maintain just sort of a basic... Uh, hygiene standard and you also kind of keep in mind uh, more advanced hygiene uh, preference this will help you uh, keep your living conditions sanitary so that it avoids uh, infection you avoid infecting infecting yourself or uh, consuming or imbibing infectious items and, uh, you know, sleeping in an area or sitting in an area that can result in um, illness for you, sickness or illness or infection or uh, contamination of some kind. If possible, you want to keep your hair clean. Uh, this even even just combing your hair every day makes a big difference. It's a it's good for morale and it also helps keep your hair clean. Uh, your hair can become a haven for bacteria or fleas, lice, and other parasites. You want to try to keep it clean, combed, and trimmed to avoid that danger. 
uh, even if you can just immerse yourself in water every so often, um, try to get as nude as you can under the circumstances. Uh, your clothing is dirty, and if you bathe in dirty clothing, it it holds that you know it contains that dirt and keeps it up against your skin even after your skin is dry. But if that's all you have available, then you should do that uh, with your clothes on. Uh, if you can douse your head in, in a, a stream or lake or whatever water source that you have or pour water over your head, uh, this helps keep your hair clean. It helps, keeps, it helps keep uh, fleas, lice, and parasites out of your hair, and it uh, helps keep your morale up. Uh, keeping clean also helps you maintain uh, your body temperature. Um, it keeps you cooler and it also keeps you warmer. Uh, if you're clean, uh, your body is able to breathe properly. Your skin is able to breathe and process uh, normal um, skin secretion correctly and and efficiently. And a, and this helps uh, it helps you stay warm when it's cold and it helps you stay cool when it's hot. Uh, you want to keep your clothing and bedding as clean as possible to reduce the chance of skin infection as well as to decrease to decrease the danger of parasitic infection and infestation. Uh, you want to clean your outer clothing whenever you it becomes soiled if you can. Uh, you want to wear clean underclothing and socks if you can. Uh, if water's scarce, uh, you want to air clean your clothing. That's uh, shaking, airing, or sunning it for two hours. You just put it out, hang it out like you're drying it. And uh, it gets kind of crusty and crunchy, but it still helps to uh, dry out the oils from your skin and the sweat and uh, helps maintain a, more of a clean surface. Uh, if you're using a sleeping bag, you want to turn it inside out after each use, fluff it and air it, and this will help keep you warm. Uh, you want to keep your teeth clean, uh, clean your mouth and teeth with a toothbrush at least once a day. If you don't have a toothbrush, uh, you make a chewing stick. And I mentioned this earlier, you uh, get a twig about 20 centimeters long and one centimeter wide, and you, then you chew one end of the stick to separate the fibers. You make sort of like a paintbrush looking stick out of it. And then you brush your teeth thoroughly with the end. And uh, another way is to wrap a clean strip of cloth around your fingers and rub your teeth with the with the cloth uh, to wipe away the food particles and and uh, clean your teeth. Uh, you can brush your teeth with uh, small amounts of sand or salt or baking soda or even soap if you have to, uh, and then rinse your mouth with water. Uh, if you can make a tea, that helps your mouth clean your mouth. Uh, salt water will clean your mouth. Uh, you can use willow bark tea. Um, and if possible, flossing your teeth with string or fiber helps with oral hygiene. Especially if you're eating a game, if you can floss, it's It's a good idea to try to figure out some way to floss to prevent uh, gingivitis. Uh, if you have cavities, you can make a temporary filling by placing a candle wax 
or hot pepper, aspirin, uh, tobacco, toothpaste, powder, portions of ginger root into your cavity. And then make sure you clean the cavity by rinsing or picking the particles out of it, out of the cavity before placing a filling in the cavity. So that's any hole in your teeth or uh, sometimes if you've you've had some kind of a situation where your teeth have been broken, uh, it's a good idea to remember this. Um, candle wax, tobacco, hot pepper, um, toothpaste or powder, aspirin, ginger root. Obviously, you want to try to reduce uh, the use of the hot pepper or the tobacco. Uh, tobacco is numbing. Uh, the hot pepper um, is a sort of an astringent. Uh, you want to try to rinse with salt water if you can, or some sort of tea. If you don't have willow bark where you're at, there's a number of different ones, different teas that can be, uh, you can use ginger tea. Um, there's a couple of others I'll go over them later. Uh, you want to take care of your feet. Um, to prevent serious foot problems, you're going to be on foot and on the move most of the time. So foot problems are going to develop. You're going to have blisters and and uh, lacerated parts of your foot. Uh, you may not have footwear. It may be your circumstances are such that you didn't. You're not able to have footwear. So you really want to try to take care of your feet as well as you can. Uh, breaking your shoes before wearing them on any mission that you're going on or any uh, survival possible trek that you're taking. Uh, and it's a good idea when you're traveling um, to wear footwear that uh, if something happens while you're traveling, you have some footwear on your feet, that you're not wearing impractical footwear for some kind of an emergency situation. Uh, you want to wear an insole and the proper size of dry sock and powder and check your feet daily for blisters. Uh, if you get a blister, do not open it. This is a... Uh, if you have a needle, it's a good idea to let the pus out of your blister. Uh, this makes a needle hole in your blister, but it uh, it reduces the pain and friction. Uh, the blister, a blister is a raised area of um, the lower epidermis uh, against the upper epidermis, and it's caused by the friction um, rubbing against the uh, lower epidermis. Um, and that produces, uh, you know, it abrades it and it, and it, and it tries to protect that area and it produces pus, but when it produces the pus to protect the area, um, that tightens the area even more by creating a, a blister pocket. And then that, uh, that's what hurts. That's what makes the blister hurt so badly. So if you release the um, the pus out of your blister, that helps the blister to heal. It helps the foot 
or the uh, section that's blistered to develop a callus rather than to blister and it uh, and it promotes the healing of the blister but you want to be careful not to rip it open or cut it open uh, and if you make a, a needle puncture on it you do it on the side uh, closest to the skin uh, from the side even with the surface of your skin so as to reduce the possibility of um, infiltration of that puncture uh, and infection of your blister. An intact blister is safe from infection. This is a common advice, but you don't really want to walk on, try to walk on blisters. I mean, it's just excruciating on actively pussed blisters. Uh, you want to apply a padding material around the blister to relieve pressure and reduce friction. If the blister bursts, treat it as an open wound and then clean and dress it daily and pad around it. You know, if your blister bursts, this tells you, obviously, you know, you can let the pus out of it. It's, it's going to come out anyway at some point. So a person can do whatever they want to do, whatever it feels best for them. But so you don't think that you have to continue walking on blisters without relieving the pus pressure in the blister if you don't want to do that. Uh, if the blister bursts, you want to treat it as an open wound and then you clean and dress it daily and you pad around it. Uh, leave large blisters intact if you can. Let the pus out of the blister, but leave the blister um, puff or uh the the blister um, cover on and just flatten it and and if you can put a dressing on it put a dressing on it uh, to you want to avoid having the blister burst or tear under pressure and then this causes an open sore where your your raw subepidermis is is you know open to the air and to uh, dirt and infection, plus it's on your feet, which makes it even more likely to get infected. And uh, it's that's an area that's uh, most, usually it's covered with your your skin. So it's your epidermis protects your the subepidermis. So you want to try not to expose that to air and infection. And if it's if it's an open wound you want to cover it with a band-aid or any kind of um, dressing so it's recommended a sewing type needle uh, the finer the better and a clean or sterilized thread and then you uh, run the needle and thread through the blister after cleaning the blister detach the needle and then leave both ends of the thread hanging out of the blister and the thread absorbs the liquid inside and reduces the size of the hole and then it also ensures that the hole does not close up and then pad around the blister. Uh, you can do that if you want to. Uh, that's an, another option. Um, the uh, thread th will rub against the um, raw subepidermis and create sort of a um, abrasive component also. So you can try that if that works.
uh, or you can just use a very fine sewing type needle and uh, let the pus out, flatten the blister cover and uh, put a band-aid on it or wrap it or tape it or uh, you can put um, uh, you can put a pine sap on it that's real uh, that creates sort of a natural band-aid on it. Um, pine sap and tree sap is fairly sterile. Uh, it's it's not the worst thing you can put on a uh, some kind of a wound. Um, it works. It just sort of works its way off. You don't want to put it on an open wound like a. You've got a. Um, you've got a you know a, a huge flap of skin has been cut open. You have a big slice in your arm. You don't want to put it inside the slice, but you can fold the sliced part back down and use that along the seam of the slice to seal it and um, and keep it somewhat airtight. Uh, then you want to pad around the blister as possible. Uh, some people use the moleskin um, if you can get that to stay on. Uh, People find that works pretty well. You can use a Band-Aid. Uh, tape is a well-known one. Um, whatever you can, whatever you can come up with that works for you that you have with you. Uh, you want to get sufficient rest. You need a certain amount of sleep to keep going. So plan for regular rest periods of at least ten minutes per hour, uh, if you can. And uh, sometimes that just means stopping and uh, resting, you know, leaning against something for five or ten minutes. Uh, you want to make yourself comfortable. Try to try to learn to make yourself comfortable under uh, less than ideal conditions. So a change from mental or mental activity to physical activity or vice versa can be refreshing for a person uh, when time or situation doesn't permit you to take a total relaxation break. Uh, one of the worst things about um, a survival situation is is having to travel, is having to move. Uh, you're hungry, you're tired, you're sick, you're thirsty, and uh, you're you're worried and scared. You're cold, you're hot. Uh, you have a lot of complaints, and most of them, almost all of them, are solved by stopping and sitting down. So almost all of them encourage you to not go anywhere. They would like you to, you know, to stop and make things more comfortable for yourself. Uh, but you can't because you're in a survival situation. So you've got to force yourself to keep moving. And sometimes the way to do that is to, uh, you know, you're too tired to keep going, but you can't stop or you're going to freeze to death, is to um, make a rest period part of your uh, motivation to keep moving. So uh, you're going to walk 100 steps and then you're going to rest for a count of 50. You're going to walk 100 steps and then you're going to rest for a count of 50. Or you're going to walk from here to the next large tree and then you're going to rest for 10 minutes. Or that sort of thing to keep, uh, to make it part of a, of a sort of a, survival routine that involves uh, resting as a motivation to keep moving.
Um, some people do it by, uh, you know, thinking about uh, the getting back to civilization, whatever civilization is for the person, and uh, where they can, you know, they can really relax and rest at that point. Uh, whatever works. Uh, you want to keep your campsite clean. You want to keep your campsite clean. Uh, do not soil the ground in the campsite with urine or feces. Uh, you want to use latrines. Uh, you know, dig a hole in the ground. Uh, in a specified area that you've determined uh, to be at a good distance from your location, but not too far. And uh, out of sight of it, perhaps, and uh, downwind of it, uh, away from your water source and away from your plant food source. Uh, when you're, when a latrine's not available, you want to dig a cat hole and then cover the waste. And uh, collecting drinking water upstream from a campsite is a good idea and purify all water as well as you can. For medical emergencies, uh, you may be forced to include breathing problems, severe shock, uh, and severe bleeding as part of your uh, medical problems and emergencies that you have to handle. And it's a good idea to have um, some idea of what that is. So for breathing, um, you're... Any of the following of these can cause airway obstruction that results in uh, the stopped breathing, uh, the inability to breathe. Uh, foreign matter in the mouth or throat that obstructs the opening to the trachea. Face or neck injuries, inflammation and swelling of mouth, your mouth and throat caused by inhaling smoke, flames, irritating vapors or allergic reactions. Uh, a kink in the throat that's caused by the neck bent forward so that the chin rests on the on the chest that blocks the passage of air, or the tongue can block the passage of air to your lungs uh, while the person's unconscious. Uh, when an individual's unconscious, the muscle the muscle of the lower jaw and the tongue relax as the neck drops forward, and that causes the lower jaw to sag and the tongue to drop back and block the passage of air. Um, these can be something that you might have to diagnose in yourself. Uh, somebody drops a grenade in an enclosed area that you're in. You're in a room with a grenade, or you're in a bunker with a grenade, or you're in a foxhole with a grenade. You come to, and the first thing you might need to check is whether or not you have some problem breathing and what exactly that problem is. Uh, severe bleeding. Uh, from from any major blood vessel in the body is extremely dangerous. Uh, with the breathing problem, also if you know, if, it's, if it's an airplane crash, uh, you're on a jetliner and there's an airplane crash, and uh, you come to, and you have to determine why you know can you breathe and can you breathe properly, and is there anything wrong with your airway? Is there anything blocking your airway? Uh, is do you have a kink in the throat from your head being jammed up against the seat in front of you? Your you know your head being slammed against your chest as the plane went down because you're in your safety position with your head between your knees uh, in your seat, your airplane seat. You know, so this is something you have to think about, paying attention to as you you regain consciousness. You know, doing a body check to see what's wrong and one of the first things you check is your 
your airway. A severe bleeding from any major blood vessel in the body is uh, dangerous. Uh, the loss of just one liter of blood produces moderate symptoms of shock, and the loss of two liters produces a severe state of shock uh, that places the body in extreme danger, and then three liters is uh, usually fatal. Um, shock is an, ex is an acute stress reaction. Uh, it's not a disease in and of itself. Uh, it's the reaction to uh, to uh, um, an injury. It's a clinical condition characterized by symptoms that arise uh, when the cardiac output is insufficient to fill the arteries with blood under enough pressure to provide an adequate blood supply to the organs and the tissues. So uh, you've been injured in your torso and uh, immediately your body sends, this is an emergency response that the human body has. It's been, there's a huge hole in the torso. All of the body's resources go to the, to the injured area and it immediately focuses all of its uh, blood and uh, um, protection uh, activities to the injured area. All of the energy resources and uh, blood resources and um, protective uh, antibody resources, all those go immediately to the hole in your torso. And it pulls all of the um, all of that resource from your extremities everything else reduces uh, its need or use of uh, your main um, protective resource of blood and uh, antibodies and sends all that to the emergency location which is in your torso so your body goes the rest of your body goes into shock uh your brain reduces its blood usage your uh your eyes and your conscious mind start to uh reduce uh usage of your body resources to allow those resources to go to your uh injured area uh, your arms and legs, uh, the blood usage there reduces uh, and and uh, endangers the um, the extremities of your body, which you know they they have sort of a problem getting enough. Your circulatory system provides circulation to your extremities, but when you go into shock and that um, circulation focuses on specifically on the injured area uh, your extremities are in danger of uh, not having to include your head and brain and and other uh, sensory organs are in danger of uh, not having enough circulation to um, regain proper function at a future date so life-saving life steps for that is to control panic your own and uh, somebody else's if you're taking care of a patient. 
Um, you want to reassure the other person and try to keep them quiet and yourself if it's you. Uh, you want to perform a rapid physical exam, uh, check for the injury, and then you want to follow uh, the air, the ABCs of first aid, that's the airway and breathing, and then do a, a body check, a, uh, an external check. And uh, a person can die from arterial bleeding more quickly than from airway obstruction in some cases. So uh, if they're struggling to breathe and you need to stop them from bleeding out before uh, moving to do a, a tracheotomy, then that's what you have to do. Uh, you can do a field tracheotomy, and I'll go over that in a little bit. Uh, and it is sometimes necessary to do. Um, there are all kinds of circumstances. You know, if you have a piece of, you've been in a train wreck, and you have a piece of metal sticking out of your throat, uh, you, you might need to have a trachea, you know, might need to insert something into uh, a hole in your trachea so that you can breathe because the metal has pierced your trachea and it makes it, it is, you know, you're not able to uh, draw air in through your mouth as you normally would in a normal breathing style. Um, you want to open the airway and maintain it by uh, checking to see if there's a partial or complete airway obstruction. If the person can cough or speak, uh, you want to clear the obstruction naturally. Uh, you want to stand by and reassure the person and then be ready to clear the airway and perform a mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation if the person goes unconscious. Uh, if the airway is completely obstructed, you want to administer uh, abdominal thrust until the, until the obstruction is cleared. Or you can just reach in and with two fingers and pull it out, sometimes three fingers, and your thumb and and remove the obstruction. If the obstruction is obtruding out of the person's uh, body in some area, in the neck or throat or mouth or cheek, uh, sometimes you have to pull it out. Uh, sometimes it's better to leave it in if it looks like it's going to cause blood loss and it's not obstructing the airway, don't remove it. Uh, using a finger, you want to sweep the victim's mouth of any foreign objects. This is for CPR. Uh, broken teeth, dentures, sand. Uh, then using uh, the jaw thrust method, you want to grasp the angle of the person's lower jaw and lift with both hands on each side, moving the jaw forward. Uh, and then for stability, rest your elbows on the surface that the, that the victim's lying on. Uh, if the victim's lips are closed, open the lower lip with the thumb. And with the victim's airway pulled open, that's why you pull the jaw forward. It pulls the tongue forward and, and opens the airway up. Uh, you want to pinch the nose with thumb and forefinger and blow two complete breaths into his lungs. Allow the lungs to deflate after the second inflation. Allow the lungs to deflate after the second inflation and then perform the uh, CPR. You want to look for the chest rising and falling, listen for escaping air during exhalation, and feel for the flow of air on your cheek. Uh, if forced breaths do not uh, stimulate spontaneous breathing, uh, maintain, maintain the victim's breathing by performing mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Uh, there's a danger of the victim vomiting during mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. So you want to check the victim's mouth periodically for vomit and clear it as needed. That 
you, uh, you'll notice, obviously you'll notice that there's vomit. Uh, and then you turn their head sideways and, uh, you can help clear it with your hand or if it runs out of it on its own, uh, it'll drain out the side and you, sometimes you have to reach into the cheek and the cheek creates sort of a pocket and, uh, clear it with your hand and then continue, um, mouth to mouth, uh, if you can disinfect it quickly with uh, water or a piece of cloth or something that you have, uh, to wipe the person's mouth out, that'll help both both parties. Um, cardiopulmonary resuscitation CPR it might be necessary after clearing the airway. And that's uh, only after major bleeding is under control. Um, and I'll go over that later. Uh, basically, you you sort of kickstart the person's breathing. Uh, they seem to have stopped breathing. Um, you check to make sure they don't have anything in their mouth. Uh, you pound on their chest, thump their chest a few times. If that doesn't start their breathing, you clear their airway like you're preparing to do CPR. Uh, pull their jaw forward, clear their airway again. Uh, check to see, look to see if they're breathing. Sometimes they're breathing very, very slightly, uh, and you don't want to you don't want to harass that with forced breathing by you know inserting your own breathing into their breathing. You want to continue to allow them to to breathe on their own. Uh, if they're not breathing, which you can tell that when if you lay your ear near their mouth, you can usually hear through their nose or mouth with their jaw pulled forward whether or not they're breathing, or you can feel it on the side of your face. Uh, if they're not breathing, then you want to sort of kickstart it with one or two breaths Sometimes that's sort of um, reminds the breathing apparatus to start up again and the person will start breathing on their own and then you don't have to do CPR. If you, C, CPR can be a, um, you know, a hard slog and if you can not have to do it, it's better. That's medical part one. In a survival situation, you have to control serious bleeding immediately. Uh, you don't have replacement fluids. Uh, you don't have uh, you don't have replacement blood. You don't have electrolytes. You don't have uh, you don't have water. You don't have any of the things that you need in an emergency situation to uh, replace bodily fluids. And the victim, the victim can die within just a matter of minutes. Uh, you can bleeding out can happen uh, very quickly within five or ten minutes. You have a very short time to act, and that includes for yourself uh, if you perceive that you are bleeding from a major artery. Um, 
you know, you want to put a tourniquet on and uh, reduce the blood flow and and uh, raise the affected body part uh, to reduce um, circulation to that area. I'll go through all of that. Um, external bleeding uh, has a couple of classifications. One's arterial and one's uh, venous and one is capillary. So there's three different arterial, venous, and a capillary. Arterial is uh, blood in the arteries, venous is blood in the veins, and capillary is blood in the capillary veins. These are small, fine, um, sort of a surface veins they're they're not they're not necessarily in the surface but they're uh, they're very small fine veins uh that sort of uh branch out from the uh main veins from larger veins uh arterial blood vessels called arteries carry the blood away from the heart and through the body and a cut artery issues bright red blood from a wound in distinct spurts or pulses that correspond to a heartbeat. Uh, because the blood in the artery is under high pressure, uh, the individual can use a large lose a large volume. They can use it too, but lose a large volume of blood in a short period of time uh, when the damage to an artery is of significant size. So. Arterial bleeding is the most serious type of bleeding, and if it's not controlled properly, it can be fatal. This is bleeding out. Uh, it can be caused by a gunshot wound. It can be caused by a uh, um, uh, cut or pierced uh, entrance into the vein. It can be caused by um, shrapnel, uh, you know, multiple... Uh, lacerations into the vein uh, can be caused by uh, the severing of a, a body part off of the body. Venous blood is, or venous blood, is uh, it's blood that returns to the heart through blood vessels that are called veins. Veins are smaller than arteries and they carry less blood. Uh, a steady flow of dark red Maroon or bluish blood characterizes bleeding from a vein. And you can control venous or venous bleeding more easily than arterial bleeding. Um, it's not directly, it's not in the direct circulatory system. It's in the secondary circulatory system. And then the capillary is the tertiary circulatory system. Uh, capillaries, uh, the surface of the heart has capillaries, the surface of the brain has capillaries, the surface of the skin, right underneath the skin has capillaries. Um, it, uh, it brings the circulation, the body circulation, to uh, the most distant part of the body, which is uh, um, the more inert surface parts. Uh, the capillaries are extremely small vessels that connect the arteries with the veins. And capillary bleeding is, it most commonly occurs in minor cuts and scrapes. Uh, this type of bleeding is not difficult to control except in the head. 
uh, in the head, it can be um, you know, some of the worst bleeding in the body. And uh, it can, you can use a, lose a lot of blood uh, through capillary release of blood in the head, both externally and inside the skull. Uh, you can control external bleeding by direct pressure, uh, indirect pressure, and elevation, digital ligation, or tourniquet. Um, if you're, you have arterial bleeding, you want to put on a tourniquet and elevation and some indirect pressure, uh, depending on where, you're, where the arterial bleeding is occurring. Um, and if you have uh, venous bleeding, you would use uh, indirect pressure. Uh, that's pressure points. So you want to you want to reduce the blood at various pressure points to reduce the bleeding into the area that uh, has the blood loss out of it. And then uh, there, there's digital ligation. That's uh, applying your thumb or finger to uh, the point to prevent loss of blood, reduce loss of blood. Uh, direct pressure, the most effective way to control external bleeding is by applying direct pressure directly over the wound. Uh, the pressure must not only be firm enough to stop the bleeding, it must also maintain be maintained long enough to seal off the damaged surface to allow it to clot and uh, reduce reduce the um, opening that the blood is um, leaving from. If bleeding continues after having applied direct pressure for 30 minutes, you want to apply a pressure dressing. Uh, the, pre the dressing consists of a thick dressing of gauze or another suitable material applied directly over the wound and held in place with a tightly wrapped bandage or with your hand pressed hard on it. Uh, it should be tighter than the ordinary compression bandage, but not so tight that it impairs circulation to the rest of the limb. And once you apply the dressing, do not remove it even when the dressing becomes blood soaked. So this is uh, the pressure dressing is the one that has a, a thick pad and then it has long uh, strips off either side and you you want to wrap those strips tightly around to create the pressure on the pad of the dressing pressing directly onto the limb and also creating somewhat of a pressure point uh, prevention with the uh, the wraparound method. Uh, you want to leave the pressure dressing in place for one to two days after which you can remove and replace it with a smaller dressing and uh, in long-term survival environment, you make a fresh daily dressing change and inspect it for signs of infection if you can. Uh, sometimes it's better to just leave it covered and uh, and try to clean it up uh, when you have something clean to use. Um, if you do not have a pressure dressing, you can use uh, a wad of cloth, um, you can use uh, a number of plants or leaves that I'll go over a bit later, uh, combined with some kind of a wrapping. Uh, you can use vines to wrap. You can use leaves, uh, larger 
uh, like um, banana leaves or uh, palm fronds to, to wrap. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to secure these um, and you can fold them under and create sort of a fold. Um, you can use rope or string or uh, you know the sleeve of your shirt or coat whatever you have with you. Uh, elevation, raising an injured extremity as high as possible above the heart's level. Uh, slows the blood loss by aiding the return of the blood to the heart and lowering the blood pressure at the wound. Uh, but the elevation alone does not control the bleeding entirely, and you have to also apply direct pressure over the wound. When treating a snake bite, you want to keep the extremity lower than the heart. Uh, for snake wound, uh, the snake wound includes poison, and really this is true for any poison um, wound that you might have. Uh, because the poison attempts to enter the bloodstream and travel through the bloodstream to the heart and or brain um, and to the other to other points in the body via the bloodstream, uh, you want to reduce its ability to move through the bloodstream. And the way to do that is to force it to go uh, up rather than across or down. So you want to lower the extremity, the arm or the leg, or the torso below the heart so that this slows down the travel of the poison into the bloodstream and its circulation into the body and to the heart where it will cause a heart attack and kill the person immediately. A pressure point is a location where the main artery uh, to the wound lies near the surface of the skin or where the main artery uh, passes um, directly over uh, where the main artery passes directly over like a bony area or uh, um, uh, cartilage area uh, you can use digital pressure on a pressure point to slow arterial arterial bleeding until the application of a pressure dressing. Uh, pressure point control is not a, as effective for controlling bleeding as direct pressure exerted on the wound and it's rare uh, that when a single major compression artery, it's rare that a single compression artery uh, will supply a damaged vessel. So um, you have an injury to your to the arm you want to reduce blood th blood flow to that injury through the arterial artery to the arm, which is underneath the armpit, on the inside, upper side of the arm, on the on the top upper part of the arm, underneath, um, on the inside bottom of the um, bicep, and by reducing the blood flow through the main artery into the arm, you reduce the blood flow uh, into the wounded area of the arm until you can get a, a pressure dressing on it and get some kind of uh, first aid going on it. Um,
So you have a wound, we'll say on the arm, uh, you have a pressure bandage, that's the, it comes in a packet, it has a thick pad and long strips off both sides. You want to place the thick pad directly on the main centered, the main part of the wound centered on the main part of the wound where it's bleeding the heaviest, and then, and then wrap both ends tightly on opposite sides of the arm uh, around the pad to create a pressure dressing and then press with your hand on the top of the pressure pressure dressing this is for yourself or somebody else uh, to um, help the body coagulate the blood and reduce the bleeding in that area and then Uh, you can help. You can put an, a second um, strip of material over it uh, at the pressure point just above the injury, called a cravat, that like a tourniquet, but not quite as serious as a tourniquet. A tourniquet uh, completely shuts the artery down. And the cravat just reduces the blood flow. It creates a pressure, um, a pressure point pressure on the artery to reduce the blood flow until the injury uh, begins to um, s provide its own stop to blood loss. Uh, if you can't remember the exact location of the pressure points, uh, you want to follow the following rule. Uh, apply pressure at the end of the joint just above the injured area. So on hands, feet, and head, that's the wrist, ankle, and neck, respectively. Uh, obviously, when you want to watch applying pressure to the neck. Too much pressure for too long causes unconsciousness or death. Um, and you don't want to place a tourniquet. Don't ever place a tourniquet on a neck. Uh, no matter how serious the wound is, do not put a tourniquet on a person's neck or on your own neck. Uh, you want to maintain pressure points by placing a round stick uh, in the joint and bending the joint over the stick and then keeping it tightly bent by lashing it and you can use this method to maintain pressure and then it frees your hands to work on other areas. Uh, if you need to if you need to put a pressure point on uh, um, a uh, artery for head injury um, one thing that you can do is you can place a uh, you can take some something firm uh, a folded, a, a bent stick, uh, a stick that's curved, or uh, some firm item that you have that bends, and place it over the shoulder on the same side as the injury. So you have uh, the person has been severely injured in the head, in the skull, on the left side of the skull. Uh, you would put um, 
a uh, firm item across the shoulder from back to front and then press create a pressure point above the um, create a pressure point above the clavicle. So just above the person's clavicle there's a there's a main artery and it and it uh, it branches to be one of the main arteries that goes in through the neck and into the head. So you can help reduce the blood flow by creating a pressure point there. Not too much of one, but if you place your your pressure point there rather than around the neck because you need to have some kind of a tourniquet level pressure point um, bandage on you but you can't do it to the neck you can't put one on the neck you can put it just above the clavicle so the main uh, arteries are at the temple the side of the jaw, underneath the back of the jaw, above the clavicle, uh, midway to the groin, on the inside of the leg, uh, in the crotch, on the inside of the leg, on the underside of the knee, on the outside of the ankle, on the un inside upper arm, on the crook of the elbow, and on the front of the wrist. Oh, those are some of the major pressure points for those arteries. Uh, the arteries are uh, the main um, circulatory points through the body. Uh, you can look this up in a most medical dictionaries have a real simplified view. Uh, they're very easy to remember. Um, a lot of times they're your pulse points so you take your pulse at the wrist, that's one of them. You take your pulse at the neck, the, underneath the jaw, that's one of them. You can see a person's pulse beating in the front of their uh, neck, just at the top of their um, chest where the neck and the chest meet, that's one. Uh, you can feel one on the inside of your arm. If you put put your thumb on the inside of your arm, you can feel the artery. Uh, the artery on the leg is on the inside of the thigh, um, and it runs down the leg on the inside of the leg, and down the arms on the inside of the arm. Did. Uh, Digital ligation, I'm sorry, digital ligation. This is, uh, you can stop major bleeding immediately or slow it down by applying pressure with a finger or two on the bleeding into the vein or artery, and then maintain the pressure until the bleeding stops or slows down enough to apply a pressure bandage, elevation, and so forth. Um, if you use a tourniquet, you want to use a tourniquet only when direct pressure over the bleeding point and all other methods did not control the bleeding. Uh, if you leave a tourniquet in place too long, the damage to the tissue can 
progress to gangrene, and that results in the loss of the limb later, uh, and severe infection before the limb goes, before it's removed, uh, that can contaminate the entire body and can kill the person. Uh, an improperly applied tourniquet can also cause permanent damage to nerves and other tissues at the, at the site of the constriction. Uh, if you have to use a tourniquet, you want to place it around the extremity between the wound and the heart, 5 to 10 centimeters above the wound site. And I never place it directly over the wound or over a fracture. You want to use a stick as a handle to tighten the tourniquet and uh, tighten it only enough to stop the blood flow. When you have tightened it, you want to bind the free end of the stick to the limb to prevent unwinding. Um, after you secure the tourniquet, you want to clean and bandage the wound, and a lone survivor does not remove or release an applied tourniquet. Uh, in a buddy system, the buddy can release the tourniquet pressure every 10 to 15 minutes uh, for one or two minutes to let the blood flow to the rest of the extremity to prevent the limb loss. Um, you have to sort of use your discretion on that. You want to prevent and treat shock. Uh, anticipate that shock's going to happen in all injured persons, uh, regardless of the severity of the injury sometimes. Um, you want to treat all injured persons as though they have shock as one of the symptoms. Uh, shock itself reduces, uh, it can result in uh, swift uh reduction of, of blood pressure that results in unconsciousness and then uh, the body um, is, un it, it cools the body, the, you can die from it. Uh, if the victim is conscious, uh, place them on a level surface with lower extremities elevated 15 to 20 centimeters. If the victim is unconscious, uh, you place them on their side or abdomen uh, with the head turned to one side to prevent choking on vomit, blood, or other fluids. Uh, if you're unsure of the best position to place the victim in, uh, lie, lay them perfectly flat uh, if you can, and once they're in a shock position, do not move the person. And then maintain the body heat by insulating the person from uh, the surrounding environment, and in some instances by, by applying external heat if you can. Um, Uh, if the person's wet, you want to remove all of their wet clothing as soon as possible and replace it with dry clothing. And uh, improvise a shelter to insulate the victim from the weather. Uh, use warm liquids or food, a pre-warmed sleeping bag, uh, another person, warm water and canteens, uh, fire, hot rocks wrapped in clothing, any way to heat up the victim uh, to provide external warmth. And if the if the victim's conscious, Slowly administer small doses of warm salt or sugar solution. Uh, if, the if the victim is unconscious or has ab an, an abdominal wound, uh, you don't want to give fluids by mouth. Uh, have the victim rest for at least 24 hours. And um, if you're by yourself, you're the survivor, and you are the one that has uh, the injury and the shock, uh, you want to lie in a depression on the ground behind a tree or any other place out of the weather with your head lower than your feet if possible. And if you're with a buddy, you want to reassess your 
your patient constantly. So for a conscious victim, you want to place them on a level surface, remove all wet clothing, uh, administer warm fluids, uh, allow at least 24 hours, administer warm fluids uh, only if they don't have an, an abdominal wound. Uh, allow at least 24 hours rest, uh, insulate them from the ground, shelter them from the weather, maintain body heat, and elevate lower extremities 15 to 20 centimeters. And that includes for yourself, uh, if you're treating yourself, or for somebody else, if you're treating somebody else. For an unconscious victim, yourself or someone else, uh, you do the same as for a conscious victim, except that you want to place the victim on their side and turn their head to one side to prevent choking on vomit, blood, or other fluids. And you do not elevate extremities, and you do not administer fluids. Uh, for a tourniquet, if you don't, if you've never applied a tourniquet before, um, you uh, you would wrap a piece of cloth around the uh, extremity at the artery above the wound, uh, about three to four inches above the wound. Um, you make a loop around the limb with a piece of cloth, a piece of rope, whatever you've got, and tie it with a square knot. And a square knot is, um, it's, uh, it's a, the double looped knot that looks like an eight. Uh, then you pass a stick, a scabbard, whatever you've got, a piece of metal, a piece of wood, uh, under the loop and then use that to create sort of a, a cranking device and you tighten the tourniquet just enough to start to stop the arterial bleeding. Just do it enough to stop the arterial bleeding. Don't continue cranking it or you will sh shut off all blood supply to the limb and the, the limb will turn purple and uh, the person will lose their, their limb for sure. Uh, under good circumstances with a tourniquet and pressure dressing and immediate medical care, the person's limb can be saved. And then you want to bind the free end of the stick to the limb to keep the tourniquet from unwinding, uh, particularly if the person has to move. They're either being moved by somebody else or they might have to stand up and, you know, hobble or hop to um, some other location. Uh, before further medical care can be administered. So you want to bind the um, crank stick down, uh, leave it in the loop because it helps it helps uh, apply pressure. Uh, if you have a bone or joint in injury, uh, you can that includes fractures, dislocations, sprains. Uh, if you have those injuries, those can be very debilitating. Um, a fracture, there's two types of fractures, an open fracture and a closed fracture. With an open or compound fracture, the bone protrudes through the skin and it complicates the actual fracture with an open wound. After setting a fracture, you want to treat the wound as you would another open wound. Uh, the closed fracture has no open wound. It's inside the body. And you want to follow uh, the immobilization, set, and splint the fracture. Those are the three steps. You immobilize the person, you set the fracture, and then you splint it.
the signs and symptoms of a fracture are pain and tenderness, discoloration, uh, swelling and deformity, a loss of function, a grating sound or a feeling of grating that occurs when the broken bone ends rub together. Uh, obviously, a protruding bone. Um, the danger with a fracture is the severing or the compression of a nerve or blood vessel at the site of the fracture. And for this reason, minimum manipulation should be done, only very cautiously. Uh, if you notice that the area below the break is becoming numb, swollen, or cool to the touch, or turning pale, uh, and there's uh, signs of shock, a major blood vessel uh, may be constricted. A major blood vessel may be constricted or severed in that case. Uh, sometimes that's inside. Uh, then you have internal bleeding, so you want to pay attention to whether or not that's happened. Um, you have to control internal bleeding and treat the victim for shock and replace lost fluids. Uh, you have to main tra maintain traction during the splinting and healing process, and you can effectively pull smaller bones uh, like the arm or lower leg by hand. You can pull those back into position, and then you splint it. Uh, you can create traction by wedging a hand or a foot in the V-notch of a tree and pushing against the tree with the other extremity, and then you can splint the break. That's if you're by yourself. Uh, sometimes you have to do it by yourself. Uh, your arm is broken. You have to set the arm. Uh, you put your wrist into the V-notch of a tree and pull back until, and, and uh, you know, s move the bone ends until they set against each other and then splint your injury or your leg. Uh, very strong muscles hold a broken thigh bone and a femur into place, making it difficult to maintain traction during healing. Uh, you can make a, a field improvised traction splint using natural material. Uh, you get two forked branches or saplings at least five centimeters in diameter and measure one from the patient's armpit uh, to 20 to 30 centimeters past the unbroken leg. And then measure the other sapling from the groin to 20 to 30 centimeters past the unbroken leg. Because you don't, you want to measure it on the broken leg, it's going to hurt them. So measure it on their unbroken side. And then you can ensure that both extend an equal distance beyond the end of the, the injured leg. So you have two splint, two splint branches. <clears throat> they're forked on one end, um, with and they're pretty sturdy. Uh, basically the type that you would use for a crutch. Uh, you have a long splint and a short splint. Uh, you want to pad the two splints if you can, uh, particularly around the area where they're going to be, um, they're going to be in contact with the fracture. Notch the end without the fork, and lash a 20 to 30 centimeter cross member piece made from a five centimeter diameter branch between them. So then you have a cross piece between the two to create sort of a an long U-shape, long, tall U-shape. Uh, this is going to be uh, sort of a, um, a uh, brace or a frame that the 
fractured limb is going to go into. Using available materials like vines or cloth or rawhide, you want to tie the splint around the upper portion of the body and down the length of the broken leg following, uh, you know, reasonable splinting uh, procedure. So the, the splint comes all the way up to the armpit. So you want to, you want to secure it uh, just at the top of the chest around the bottom of the rib cage uh around the waist if you if it you have room for that and then around the upper thigh around the mid thigh below the just below the knee at the mid midway in between uh the ankle and the knee once or twice and then at the ankle and at the ankle it's going to be attached to your cross piece member at the bottom of the uh, brace. Uh, with available material, you fashion a wrap that will extend around the ankle with the two free ends tied to the cross piece member at the bottom of the brace, and then place a 10 by 2.5 centimeter stick in the middle of the free ends of the ankle wrap between the cross member and the foot. Using the stick, twist the material to make the traction easier. And this sort of tightens it. It tightens the brace uh, against the leg to hold it tight and pulls the bone so that you can set the bone. Then it continue then continue twisting until the broken leg is as long or slightly longer than the unbroken leg, and then lash the stick to maintain traction. Uh, you can lose traction with this because the materials weaken. Uh, with movement and just uh, long-term um, tension. Uh, you want to check the traction periodically and, and, and re-tighten it. Uh, if you have to change or repair the splint, maintain the traction manually for a short time. Uh, dislocation, that's the separation of bone joints that cause the bones to go out of proper alignment. Uh, the misalignment can be painful and it can cause an impairment of nerve or circulatory function below the area affected and you have to place the joint back into alignment as quickly as possible. Uh, signs and symptoms of dislocation are joint pain, tenderness, swelling, discol discoloration, uh, purple or blue, limited range of motion and deformity of the joint, and you can treat dislocations by reduction, uh, immobilization, and rehabilitation. So reduction is setting in place the bones, uh, setting or placing the bones back into their proper alignment. So if your shoulder is uh, dislocated, you've got to set that bone joint back into the bone socket. Now you can use several methods, but manual traction or the use of weights to pull the bones are the safest and the easiest. Uh, again, you can uh, stick your arm into the crotch of a tree and then pull your arm, the, you know, lean back with your foot against the tree, pull your arm socket forward until it pops back in. Uh, it, it naturally wants to be in the, the socket, the ball of your um, extremity wants to be in the socket that it belongs in. So you just you have to pull it over the edge of the socket and then it uh, it does try to find its way back in there pretty quickly on its own. 
the muscle and tendons basically hold the ball into the socket and it helps uh, keep the ball in the socket under extreme conditions. So if it's come out, um, you you basically you just have to clear the ball of the of the joint has to clear the edge of the socket and it'll just uh, the the muscle tendons and sinews of the of the joint will do the rest it'll pop it right back in uh, so reduction is setting the bone into the proper alignment in the the ball and socket back together uh, once uh, the reduction is performed, it decreases the victim's pain and allows for normal function and circulation. And then you just uh, reduce mobility of that um, of that extremity uh, and and wait for the muscle and tendon around it to uh, heal and strengthen up again. And normal movement will be reacquired. Uh, without an x-ray you can judge proper alignment by the look and feel of the joint and by comparing it to the joint on the opposite side. There'll be some small amount of normal movement. You can tell right away that the arm moves correctly or the leg moves correctly a little bit better. Uh, mobilization uh, is, just means splinting the dislocation after reduction. So you re reinsert the ball into the socket and then you immobilize it with a splint. You can use a field expedient material for a splint or you can uh, splint the extremity to the body. Uh, the basic guideline for splinting is um, splint above and below the fracture site. Pad splints to reduce discomfort and check circulation below the fracture after making each tie on the splint. And then to rehabilitate the dislocation, you want to remove the splint after 7 to 14 days and gradually use the injured joint until it's fully healed. Uh, for sprains, uh, the sprain is an accidental overstretching of a tendon or ligament. Uh, and signs and symptoms are pain, swelling, discolored, discoloration, tenderness, black and blue. Uh, when treating sprain, the sprain, you want to think uh, RICE, R-I-C-E. Rest the injured area, that's R, I, ice for 24 hours and heat after that if you don't have ice. Uh, reduce temperature. Um, you, can, uh, you can dig a shallow area and, and where it's cooler or you can use cooler water. Uh, compression wrapping, C, compression wrapping or splinting to help stabilize it. If possible, leave a boot on a sprained ankle unless circulation is compromised. Or you can just take the laces out of the boot and uh, and then use the boot uh, wrapped at the top and bottom as a brace. And E, elevation of the affected area uh, to reduce swelling and inflammation. For bites and stings, insects and related pests are hazards in a survival situation and they not only cause irritation, they carry disease. They can cause allergic reaction. Uh, in some parts of the world, uh, there's serious, even fatal diseases that um, are carried by insects. Ticks carry and transmit diseases, Rocky Mountain, spotted fever, uh, the Lyme disease, 
um, variety of other nasty things. Uh, mosquitoes carry malaria, dengue, and other diseases. Uh, flies can spread disease from contact with infectious uh, sources, and uh, they cause uh, sleeping sickness, typhoid, cholera, and dysentery. Fleas transmit plague, uh, black plague. Lice transmits typhus and relapsing fever. And uh, the best way to avoid the complications of insect bites and stings is uh, keep your immunizations up to date, booster shots for those, avoid insect-infested areas like netting and insect repellent, and wear all your clothing properly. Uh, if you get bitten or stung, don't scratch the bite or sting. It can become infected if you scratch it. Uh, inspect your body at least once a day to ensure there's no insects attached to you. Um, if you find ticks attached to your body, you want to cover them with a substance like Vaseline or heavy oil or tallow or tree sap uh, that cuts off their air supply. Without air, the tick releases its hold. It pulls its head out of the flesh, and then you can uh, remove it safely. Uh, don't, don't pull a tick off without uh, first uh, applying um, a smothering substance. Uh, if the head gets embedded in your flesh, it will become infected. It's a, it's nat it's normally dirty. It's got a normal, uh, dirty infectious quality to it. Uh, they, the tick, um, secretes a, um, an enzyme that's uh, infectious, and uh, the body will treat it like, like it's a embedded infection. And it can be really ugly to try to take care of it after, after you've pulled the head off of it, and it's um, the skin is closed over the top of that, and it's created an internal infection. Uh, you can use tweezers if you have them, and then you grasp the tick where the mouth parts are attached to the skin. Uh, don't squeeze the tick's body; just wash your hands and wash your hands after touching it. The tick. Uh, clean the tick wound daily until it's healed. You can also use heat. Uh, you can use a match or a um, you know, light. <clears throat> a bit of fire on a stick and uh, apply it to the carapace, the back carapace of the uh, tick and the tick will, it burns the tick and it withdraws its head and uh, and then you can take it off, safely take it off of you. Um, for treatment, for bites and stings, uh, there's a long list of treatments, um, some of the main ones. Antibiotics are available uh, if you have access to them. Um, immunizations prevent a lot of common diseases carried by mosquitoes and flies. Uh, if you're traveling, you probably already have those immunizations. Most of them are required to enter a country is to show immunization. Uh, if it isn't required, you, it's a good idea to get it, um, especially in uh, South, uh, most of Asia and uh, Southeast and Southwest Asia. Um, the jungle and swamp areas, those have a high uh, disease 
insect to disease quotient. Africa has a very high one, so you want to get your immunizations. Keep your boosters up to date, your booster shots on your immunizations up to date. Uh, the common flyborne diseases are treatable, treatable with penicillin and erythromycin. Uh, if you can, if you have access to those. Tick, flea, lice, mite-borne diseases are all treatable with tetracycline. And antibiotics come in 250 milligram or 500 milligram tab tablets. If you can't remember the exact dose rate to treat a disease, uh, two tablets four times a day for 10 to 14 days uh, is usually the most is effective for just about everything. Uh, bee and wasp stings. If you're stung by a bee, you want to immediately remove the stinger and venom sac. Uh, if it's attached by scraping it with a fingernail or a knife blade, or uh, you can use a sharp edge of a <clears throat> sharp edge on a stone or a shell. Uh, don't squeeze or grasp the stinger or venom sac, since squeezing it forces more venom into the wound. And then you want to wash the sting site thoroughly with soap and water, or or just even plain water is good enough to clean it off, uh, lessen the chance of a secondary infection. If you know or suspect that you're allergic to insect stings, you can always carry an insect sting kit with you. Um, uh, antihistamine to reduce uh, swelling of the airways. Uh, swelling of eyes and nose and ear area. Uh, to relieve the itching and discomfort by insect bites, you want to apply a cold compress. Uh, you can use uh, mashed leaves. You can use wetted leaves. Uh, you can use a poultice, a cooling paste of mud and ashes, uh, sap from dandelions, coconut meat, um, crushed cloves of garlic, an onion, um, there's some others. I'll go over them a bit later. Some of these I've already covered in uh, some previous episodes, but I can, uh, I'll cover, probably, probably cover it again. Uh, spider bites and scorpion stings. Uh, black widow spiders identifiable by red hourglass on its abdomen. Uh, only the female bites and has a neurotoxic venom. Uh, the initial pain is not severe, but severe local pain rapidly develops, and that's how you know what it is. Uh, the pain gradually spreads over the entire body, and then it settles in the abdomen and legs of the person. Abdominal cramps and progressive nausea, vomiting, and a rash occur. Weakness, tremors, sweating, salivation, anaphylactic reaction, anaphylactic shock. Symptoms uh, go on for some time and then be begin to regress after several hours. Uh, and then over a couple of days, uh, they reduce, and then you can treat for shock. Uh, you have to be ready to perform CPR uh, and clean and dress the bite area to reduce the risk of infection. Um, there is an anti-venin available for the black widow. A funnel web spider is a large brown or gray spider. It's found in Australia. Uh, the symptoms and treatment for the bite are the same as for a black widow spider. Uh, it's pretty severe. That goes on. That's uh, for a black widow. The symptoms begin to regress after 
it's several hours. Uh, it can be anywhere from four, three or four to 48. And for a funnel web spider, it's definitely 24 to 48 hours or longer before it begins to really, there's a heavy fever. Uh, it really does affect the person for some days before um, they begin to recover from it, if they're going to recover. It can kill the person if the person is small, a child, or small of stature. Uh, if the person's already ill or has pre-existing heart condition um, or circulatory problems, uh, that can kill. It, uh, the person can die from it. Uh, the brown house spider, a brown recluse, is a small, light brown spider. Uh, it's identified by a, break, a dark brown violin on its back. Uh, there's no pain or very little pain uh, from a spider house uh, brown recluse or house spider bite. Uh, usually the victim's not really aware of the bite. And with a few hours, within a few hours, a painful red area develops with a mottled uh, cyanotic center. Uh, this, the cyanotic center is like a white kind of... Uh, raised, unnatural-looking discoloration. Uh, and then necrosis uh, does not in occur in all brown house or brown recluse bites, but in three to four days, a star-shaped firm area of deep purple discoloration appears at the bite site. And it really does, you can tell, it does look like a bite has happened. It's like a there's discoloration all around it, and then it goes down to the center uh, where the bite occurred, and it's kind of this grayish-looking uh, protuberance area that looks unhealthy. Um, the margins separate. Uh, there's a deep purple discoloration appears at the bite site, and the area turns dark and mummified in a week or two. And then the margins separate, and the scab falls off and leaves an open ulcer. And then a secondary infection and regional lymph gland infection that that produces swollen lymph glands, lymph nodes, uh, become visible at that stage. And then um, the ulcer doesn't heal, but it persists for weeks or months. Uh, it kind of like partially heals and then and then continues to fester. Uh, in addition to the ulcer, there's often a systemic reaction that's very serious and can lead to death. Uh, fever, chills, joint pain, vomiting, generalized rash, uh, generalized malaise. Uh, it, that occurs chiefly in children or debilitated persons, uh, older persons, anybody who's got pre-existing conditions. Uh, it's... Uh, it's pretty serious and it requires um, waiting it out and treating it uh, with um, a leeching poultice. Uh, tarantulas are large, hairy spiders. They're found mainly in the tropics. Uh, most do not inject venom, but some in South America do. Uh, South American tarantulas uh, inject a venom into their bite. Uh, they have large fangs, and if a person's bitten, there's pain and bleeding and infections likely. So you want to treat a tarantula bite like you would an open wound and then try to prevent infection. 
You have symptoms of poisoning appear. You want to treat it, treat it the same as you would for a black widow. Spider bite. Uh, scorpions are all poisonous to a greater or lesser degree. There are two different reactions uh, depending on the species. Uh, severe local reaction with pain and swelling around the area of the sting. A prickly sensation around the mouth and a thick feeling tongue. Or a severe systemic reaction with little or no visible local reaction. So the person can't, sometimes they can't tell they've been bitten by a um, scorpion specifically. Uh, but you kind of notice from the symptoms. There's uh, some local pain, uh, deep muscular pain. And then systemic reaction that includes respiratory difficulty, a thick feeling tongue, body spasms muscle spasms, drooling, gastric distension, double vision, blindness, involuntary rapid eyeball movement, involuntary urination and defecation, uh, and heart failure or um, uh, heart, heart, near heart attack symptoms. Uh, death is rare unless by a heart attack. Uh, it occurs mainly in children and adults with high blood pressure or heart uh, illness or um, there is a possibility of stroke. Again, uh, people with pre-existing conditions, elderly persons, small children. They want to treat scorpion stings as you would a black widow bite. Uh, also, small adults uh, suffer more from poison uh, than large adults. Obviously, there's a a large adult has a more body area to cover with the poison, so a single bite has to has to systemically shut down a larger body size than a smaller body size. So uh, the poison um, effect is proportionate to body size and uh, body weight. You want to treat scorpion stings as you would a black widow bite. Uh, snake bites, the chance of a snake bite um, is uh, small if you take care to look where you sit, walk, and stand, and uh, stay away from snakes as well as you can. If you're, various with, if you're familiar with the various types of snakes and their habitats, uh, you reduce your chance of snake bite significantly. Uh, if it does happen, you should know how to treat a snake bite. Uh, death from snake bite is rare. Uh, usually a heart attack or um, uh, extenuating circumstances like uh, additional survival circumstances, excessive heat, uh, uh, inability to treat the bite, um, more than one bite, that kind of thing. Um, more than one half of a sna of snake bite victims have little or no poisoning, and it, and only about one quarter develops serious systemic poisoning. But the chance of a snake bite in a survival situation can affect your morale, and a failure to take preventive measure or failure to treat a snake bite results in can result in tragedy of death. Obviously, a uh, primary concern of the snake bite is to limit the amount of eventual tissue destruction around the, the bite area. A bite wound, regardless of the type of animal that inflicts it, uh, can become infected from bacteria with non-poisonous as well as poisonous snake bites. Uh, local infection is responsible for 
a large part of residual damage from the snake bite. Uh, snake venom uh, not only contains poisons that attack the venom's central nervous system, those are neurotoxins, uh, and blood circulation, hemotoxins. Um, it also uh, has digestive enzymes, that are, that's cytotoxins, that aid in digesting the prey, and uh, poisons can cause very large area of tissue death that leave a large open wound. So the condition can uh, lead to the need for eventual amputation if it's not treated. Uh, shock and panic in a, in a person bitten by a snake can affect the person's recovery. Excitement, hysteria, panic, those all speed up circulation and they, they cause a person running, running away, uh, causes a person to absorb the toxin more quickly. So signs of shock occur within the first 30 minutes after the bite and you should treat for signs of shock as well. Uh, before you start treating a snake bite, snake bite, you want to determine whether the snake was poisonous or non-poisonous. Bites from a non-poisonous snake will show rows of teeth, and bites from a poisonous snake uh, have rows of teeth, but uh, they also show one or more distinctive puncture marks. So puncture marks means poison, uh, bite marks means teeth marks. Um, the fang penetration is what injects the poison. Uh, symptoms of a poisonous bite are spontaneous bleeding from the nose and, and anus, blood in the urine, pain at the site of the bite, and swelling at the site of the bite within a few minutes or up to two hours later. Uh, there's breathing difficulty, uh, rattling breathing, paralysis, weakness, twitching, numbness. Uh, these are all signs of neurotoxic venom, and uh, they appear 1.5 to 2 hours after the bite. Um, and if you de if you determine that a poisonous snake bit the individual, you want to take the following steps uh, to include for yourself. Uh, reassure the victim and keep them still. Reassure yourself. Stay still. Um, get out of range of the snake, uh, obviously, before you stay still. Set up for shock and force fluids or give an intravenous IV. Uh, drink water. Remove watches, rings, bracelets, or other constricting items around that area to include shoes or uh, like if you have a pant that has a elastic cuff. Clean the bite area. Maintain an airway, especially if the bite is near the face or the neck, and be prepared to administer mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation or CPR. Um, one thing you can do if you're by yourself is uh, open your own airway. Use a constricting band between the wound and the heart. Immobilize the site. Remove the poison as soon as possible by using a medical suction device or squeezing. Do not give the victim alcoholic beverages or tobacco products. Do not give morphine or other central nervous system depressors. Make a deep cut at the site uh, to open capillaries and open a direct route. So I got cut off on the end there. Uh, for a uh, poisonous snake bite, uh, you do not want to give, do not give morphine or other central nervous system depressors to include alcohol. Do not make any deep cuts at the bite site. Uh, you don't want to cut open any um, direct route into the blood bloodstream for venom and infection to enter into. Uh, the advice is uh, the old advice is to cut a deep X at the site of the bite, and then uh, suck the either put a suction cup over, or you can suck the uh, 
infected blood out and spit it out. Um, this, you have to use your own discretion uh, based on your circumstances, what it looks like, what you have to do. But you want to not make any... You don't want to give the poison access into the bloodstream any more than it already has. So if it's not near a major bloodstream, then... Um, you know, don't give it, don't give it that access into the bloodstream, uh, and try to treat it without, um, without cutting it or, uh, creating a wound around it any more than the puncture wound of the, of the bite. Um, the bite can be necrotic though, so you do have to, you do have to consider uh, treating it with a, a leaching poultice or um, a, some other leaching, or you can uh, attempt to suck the poison out if that seems possible. Uh, if medical treatment's over an hour away, you want to make an incision no longer than six millimeters and no longer, no deeper than three millimeters deep, right over each puncture, and then just cut deep enough to enlarge the fang opening, but only through the first or second layer of skin, and then place a suction cup over the bite so that you have a good vacuum seal. Uh, suction the bite site three to four times. You use mouth suction only as a last resort because it, it does, uh, it does um, poison the mouth, and the inside of the mouth is um, the... Uh, interior of the mouth has a quick absorption um, surface. So when you suck po the snake poison into your mouth, uh, you know, you're, you're infecting your own mouth a little bit with the, the snake poison. Only if you do not have open sores in your mouth should you uh, suction the bite with your mouth. Spit the envenomed blood out and then rinse your mouth with water each time. Each time that you suck venom out and spit it out, and you can taste the difference, uh, rinse your mouth out with water. Uh, the method will draw about 20 to 30 percent of the venom, and that's enough to um, that's enough to save the person's life. Uh, put your hands on your face. Do, do not put your hands on your face or rub your eyes. Uh, the venom is on your hands, and uh, it can cause blindness. And then break, do not break open large blisters that form around the bite site. Uh, those are, those are a symptom. They're not like a regular friction blister. Uh, it's a, it's a in, infection symptom. Um, don't break it open. It's part of the infection process. And if it's broken open, uh, it lends itself to um, exacerbating the um, the poisoning of the person. Uh, after you've cared for the victim as described just now, uh, you want to take minimizing action to minimize local effects. So if an infection appear, uh, if an infection appears, you want to keep the wound open and clean. Uh, use heat after 24 to 48 hours to help prevent the spread of local infection. Heat also helps to draw to draw out an infection. 
So you can use that to help leach out uh, the infection. Keep the wound covered with a dry, sterile dressing and have the victim drink large amounts of fluid until the infection is gone. Um, wounds are an interruption uh, of the skin's integrity. The skin is broken open in some place. Uh, wounds can be open wounds, skin diseases, frostbite, trench foot, and burns. So the integrity of the skin is is interrupted at the site of a wound. Uh, open wounds are, are a serious concern in a survival situation. It's difficult to keep them clean. It's difficult to keep them covered. It's difficult to uh, recover from them. They take a lot of energy for the body to heal a wound, uh, particularly an open wound. And it's not just because of tissue damage and blood loss, but um, bacteria uh, on the object that made the wound had, often will infect the wound. Uh, bacteria that's just normally on a, on a person's skin and clothing or on other foreign materials or dirt that touch the wound can cause a very serious infection. Uh, particularly in areas where it's damp, there's high humidity or it's a damp swamp-like or jungle-like atmosphere. Uh, any place where uh, it's a low... Um, it's, it's got a high, uh, condensation rate. Um, it's difficult for the, for the wound to heal. It's difficult for the body to, uh, produce, um, the necessary actions to heal the wound properly and the wound takes a lot longer to heal and uh, becomes infected much easier and faster. Uh, by taking care of the wound, you can reduce further contamination and promote uh, more healing of the wound. Um, you wanna clean it as soon as possible after the wound occurs. Uh, remove or cut away clothing or from around the wound. Look for an exit wound if a sharp object, gunshot, or projectile caused a wound. And then thoroughly clean the skin around the wound. Uh, you want to check and see if anything's uh, in it, if it's uh, embedded in the wound. Remove it if you can. Uh, rinsing, not scrubbing the wound with a large amount of water under pressure. Um, urine is sterile if you can if you need to use that to disinfect or sterilize the wound, you can use that if water's not available. Uh, open treatment method is the safest way to manage a wound in a survival situation. Uh, don't try to close any wound by such suturing it or similar procedure. Uh, leave it open to allow the drainage of pus that results from infection. As long as a wound can drain, it generally doesn't become life-threatening regardless of how unpleasant it looks or smells. Uh, this can lead to gangrene though, so you really have to monitor it carefully. Cover the wound with a clean dressing. Place a bandage on the dressing to hold it in place. Change the dressing daily to check for infection. Uh, if a wound is gaping, you can bring the edges together with adhesive tape cut in the form of a butterfly or a dumbbell or any sticky. You can use egg, bird egg, 
You can use a sap or a resin, uh, butterfly enclosures. Uh, in a survival situation. Uh, some degree of wound infection is almost inevitable. You get pain, swelling, redness around a wound, uh, increased temperature, pus uh, around the wound, out of the wound, or on the dressing in indicate that infection is present. Uh, to treat an infected wound, you want to place a warm, moist compress directly on the infected wound. Change the compress uh, when it cools, keeping a warm compress on the wound for a total of 30 minutes. And then apply, uh, apply the compresses three or four times daily. You want to drain a wound, open it, and gently probe it with a sterile instrument. Uh, you can kind of pinch at it, or you can use a sterilized tweezers. You can sterilize things by boiling it in water. Uh, dress and bandage the wound and drink a lot of water. That helps to clear out the, uh, the infection. Continue the treatment daily until all signs of infection have disappeared. Until all signs of infection have disappeared. Uh, if you don't have any antibiotics and the wound becomes severely infected, uh, does not heal uh, an ordinary debridement is impossible. That's uh, the making of a scab. Uh, you want to consider maggot therapy despite its hazards. This is not recommended in most circumstances unless it really seems like you have to do it. Uh, expose the wound to flies for one day and then cover it and then check daily for maggots. Once maggots develop, you keep a wound covered but check daily. Remove all maggots when they have cleaned out all dead tissue and before they start on healthy tissue. Uh, increased pain and bright red blood in the wound indicate that maggots have reached healthy tissue. Flush the wound repeatedly with sterile water or fresh urine to remove the maggots. And then check the wound every four hours for several days to ensure all maggots have been removed. Uh, they do lay eggs. So, um, you want to continue flushing it out over those several days uh, as necessary. Bandage the wound and treat it like any other wound and then it should heal normally. Uh, for skin diseases and ailments, boils, fungal infections, rashes, um, it seems like these aren't serious health problems, but uh, if they're allowed to, to um, continue without treatment, uh, they can debilitate a person, they cause discomfort, and, uh, and they really can um, lead to infection and illness. To treat boils, you want to apply a warm compress uh, to bring the boil to a head, then open it with a sterile knife, wire, needle, anything sharp, a piece of shell. Uh, you can use uh, uh, the spines on a cactus, you can use uh, um, the thorns off a thorn tree. Uh, you can sterilize those by boiling them. Uh, boil for about three to five minutes. The longer the better. Uh, don't boil it so long that it uh, gets soft and you can't use it. Um, thoroughly clean out pus using water and soap or uh, water and some other disinfecting item. 
uh, cover the boil site and check it periodically, periodically to ensure no further infection develops. For fungal infections, you want to keep the skin clean and dry, expose the infected area to as much uh, clear, open sunlight as possible. Uh, do, not, do not scratch the affected area. During, um, in Southeast Asia, uh, you want to use antifungal powders, lye soap, chlorine bleach, alcohol, vinegar, concentrated salt water, iodine, any of those to treat fungal infections with uh, varying degrees of success. It's, it's difficult to limit fungal infection in Southeast Asia. Uh, as with any other unorthodox method of treatment, you want to use it with caution and, uh, and use your own good sense and common sense. Uh, for rashes, to treat a rash, you want to determine what's causing it. A determination can be difficult sometimes, even in best of circumstances. Uh, observe the following. If it's moist, keep it dry. If it's dry, keep it moist. And do not scratch it. Uh, do not... Uh, well, you can use a compress of vinegar or tannic acid that's derived from tea or from boiling acorns or the bark of a, hard, a hardwood tree uh, to dry weeping rashes. And you keep dry rashes moist by rubbing a small amount of rendered animal fat or grease on the affected area. Uh, you can use things like aloe also. A number... A number of uh, plants have uh, aloe is a good example. Aloe, aloe is uh, it helps um, promote healing, and it also soothes and cools. Uh, it can provide a warming layer, and uh, and it keeps things moist. Uh, it helps reduce um, scars and scar tissue. Uh, and there's several other plants that do that. I'll try to go over those later. Uh, you want to treat rashes like an open wound and clean and dress them daily. Uh, there's a number of substances you can use in the wild for antiseptic. Uh, iodine tablets, you can obviously carry those with you. Uh, 5 to 15 tablets and a liter of water to produce a good rinse for a wound during healing. Uh, you can use garlic, rub it on a wound or boil it to extract oils and use the water to rinse the affected area. Salt water two to three tablespoons of uh, salt per liter of water to kill bacteria. Bee honey, uh, you can use that straight or dissolved in water. Uh, sphagnum moss, that's found in boggy areas and it's a natural source of iodine. You can use that as a dressing. Uh, you just put it right over it, um, just like you would uh, a regular cloth dressing and, uh, and then secure it and uh, change it uh, regularly or daily. And again, you want to use uh, natural materials with caution. Try to make sure they're as clean as possible and use good sense about it. Uh, for frostbite, um, frostbite is frozen tissue. Uh, it's it's very severe um, affliction. It's a, it's a severe uh, injury. Um, Light frostbite just involves uh, the skin and it takes on a dull or whitish pallor. A deep frostbite extends into the tissue 
and the tissue becomes solid and immovable. It just it, it freezes it. And uh, your hands and feet and exposed facial area are, are particularly vulnerable, vulnerable to frostbite. Uh, um, any place that's got uh, less flesh and it's uh, just skin and... Um, Uh, you know, directly to the surface of uh, bone or, you know, your nose, your ears, uh, your fingers, your toes. Uh, there's, those are most susceptible, uh, most prone to frostbite. Uh, when you're with others, you want to prevent frostbite by using a buddy system. So check uh, the other person's face and, and exposed body areas. Uh, for pallor, for pale spots that appear that look frozen. It looks like they have white uh, pale spots that have frozen on their face. If you're alone, you per per periodically want to cover your nose and the lower part of your face with your mittens. I do not try to thaw the affected area by placing them close to a, an open flame. Gently rub it with lukewarm water and then dry the part and place it next to the skin to warm it at body temperature. Um, trench foot. This is a condition uh, for many hours or days of exposure to wet or damp conditions at a temperate, uh, in a temperature just above freezing. Uh, nerves and muscles sustain main damage. Gangrene can occur. In extreme cases, the flesh dies and it becomes necessary to have the foot or leg amputated. Uh, the best prevention is to keep the feet dry and then carry extra socks in a waterproof packet. Dry wet socks that you have against your body if possible. Uh, wash your feet daily and put on dry socks. Um, you can get this from wearing your boots constantly and not taking them off enough to air your feet in uh, uh, high humidity, uh, high um, swamp area where you're up to your knees in your boots or that's hiking boots or military boots in uh, swampy conditions uh, your feet and socks are wet all the time and then you're also in a high humidity area a jungle area or high humidity swamp area and uh, stuff just doesn't dry uh, burns field treatment for burns uh, relieves the pain and helps speed healing and it offers some protection against infection. So you want to stop the burning process first. Uh, if there's a fire on it, you want to put out the fire by removing clothing, dousing it with water or sand, rolling on the ground, and then cool the burning skin with ice or water. Well, uh, for burns caused by white, white phosphorus, uh, pick out the white phosphorus with tweezers. Do not douse it with water. Uh, soak dressings or clean rags for 10 minutes in a boiling tannic solution. Tannic acid uh, is obtained from tea or the inner bark of hardwood trees or acorns boiled in water. Uh, place cool dressings or clean rags uh, over the burns. Treat it as an open wound. Replace fluid loss. Maintain the airway. Treat for shock. And uh, consider using morphine unless the burns are near the face. Uh, remember that uh, whatever you put on a burn sticks to it. 
So place things carefully with the thought that uh, you're going to need to remove it for yourself or others. Environmental injuries like heat stroke, hypothermia, diarrhea, intestinal parasites, those are all environmental. Uh, heat stroke, that's the breakdown of the body's uh, heat regulatory system. Uh, the body temperature is more than 40.5 degrees Celsius. That's 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that causes heat stroke. Other heat injuries, uh, cramps or dehydration, uh, do not always precede heat stroke, and sometimes you don't have a lot of signs or warnings of it. Uh, the signs and symptoms of heat stroke are swollen, beet red face, uh, red and whites of eyes, uh, victim not sweating, and unconsciousness or delirium that causes pallor, a bluish color to lips and nail buds, and cool skin. Uh, for black people, um, it's a swollen, uh, uh, darkened face, like uh, um, red and black together or purple, uh, red and whites of eyes, uh, victim not sweating, uh, in a um, the vein, raised veins, and unconsciousness or delirium uh, that causes a grayish pallor, a bluish pallor uh, to lips and nail beds and cool skin. Um, <clears throat> at that point, the, the victim's in severe shock. So you want to cool the victim as rapidly as possible by dipping them into a cool stream or at least under shade. Uh, you can dig a hole in the ground uh, that reduces the temperature, uh, a, a deep depression, and place the person in the depression in the ground. Uh, if a cool stream is not available, douse the victim with uh, urine, water, or uh, cool, wet compresses to all the joints, especially the neck, the armpits, the crotch, uh, the face. Uh, the chest around the um, base of the throat. Uh, be sure to wet the victim's head. Uh, heat loss through the scalp is, is uh, that's where the body loses the most heat. So you want to encourage the body to uh, reduce heat at the head. Uh, you administer IVs and provide drinking fluids and then fan the, fan the, fan the individual. Uh, the the person can expect to vomit. You'll have vomiting, diarrhea, struggling, shivering, shouting, prolonged unconsciousness, uh, a rebound heat stroke within forty eight hours. That means they've they've uh, they've recovered from the initial heat stroke, and then there's like a secondary heat stroke about forty eight hours later. Uh, and cardiac arrest is possible, and uh, that will. That would require performing CPR to uh, to restart their heart. I uh, want to treat for dehydration with lightly salted water if possible. Hypothermia, that's, um, that's the body's failure to maintain a temperature heat of 36 degrees Celsius or 97 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, it's a reduced body heat uh, below the normal healthy body temperature. Uh, exposure to cool or cold temperature over a short or long time period can cause hypothermia, so dehydration and lack of food and rest predispose uh, a person to hypothermia. 
Uh, unlike heat stroke, you can gradually warm a hypothermia victim. You have to gradually warm them. Don't, don't abruptly warm them with a fire. Gradually warm them with a warm room. Uh, get the victim into dry clothing and replace lost fluids and warm the person. Uh, with another person initially and then into a warmer area and, uh, and then, you know, increase the heat uh, if you can do that. Diarrhea is a common and debilitating ailment. It's caused by a change of water and food. It's caused by stress. It's caused by contaminated water, spoiled food, fatigue, dirty dishes. Uh, you can avoid most of that by practicing preventative medicine and good hygiene. Uh, if you get diarrhea and you do not have any anti-diarrheal medicine with you, uh, you can... Do the, you can limit your intake of fluids for 24 hours. You can drink one cup of a strong tea solution every two hours until the diarrhea slows or stops. Uh, tannic acid in tea helps to control diarrhea. Uh, you want to boil the inner bark of a hardwood tree for two hours or more to release tannic acid. It turns brown. The water turns brown. That's the tannic acid. Uh, make a solution of one handful of ground chalk, charcoal, or dried bones and treated water. Uh, if you have some apple, pomace, or the rind of citrus fruit, you can add an equal portion to the mixture to make it more effective, and then take two tablespoons of the solution every two hours until the diarrhea slows or stops. Uh, intestinal parasites are another uh, intestinal problem. Uh, intestinal parasites uh, are best prevented by preventative measures. Uh, worm infestation is not something you want, and the best way to avoid it is to pay attention to your environment and uh, and practice uh, safe and uh, safe methods and um, preventative medicine and good hygiene to reduce the possibility of encountering worm infestation. Uh, don't go barefoot. Uh, the most effective way to prevent intestinal parasites is to avoid uncooked meat and raw vegetables contaminated by raw sewage or human waste that's uh, used as a fertilizer or in severe circumstances. If you do become infested with uh, worms or parasites and you don't have the proper medicine, you can use home remedies. Uh, these are home remedies um, and they work on the principle of uh, changing the environment of the gastrointestinal tract, which is a pretty sensitive area for most people. Uh, everybody's got their own uh, gastrointestinal um, flora and fauna that uh, keep the person's uh, intestinal tract working correctly. And uh, it varies from person to person what works best for them. So you salt water is a you can dissolve four tablespoons of salt in one liter of water um, once, and this sometimes helps uh, clear out the, the uh, gastrointestinal tract of infestation. Uh, tobacco, you eat one to 1.5 cigarettes. Uh, the nicotine in the cigarettes kills or stuns worms long enough for the um, intestinal tract to pass them. If the infestation is severe, you have to repeat the treatment in 24 to 48 hours.
but do not repeat it before the first 24 hours uh, and if if possible before the first 36 hours and then uh, possibly 48 hours if that's because uh, it will it it does make you pretty ill kerosene you can drink two tablespoons of kerosene do not drink more than two tablespoons you can repeat this treatment in 24 to 48 hours uh, the best time is at 36 hours if possible be careful not to inhale the fumes they cause lung ir irritation and hot peppers hot peppers are effective only if they're a steady part of your diet uh, you can eat them raw or put them in soap or rice and meat dishes and it creates a prohibitive environment for parasitic attachment. Uh, herbal medicines, modern modern drugs, uh, modern drugs and laboratories and equipment. Um, these are great advances. Uh, they're there has been, uh, you know, a, a primitive type of medicine, herbal medicine, um, that uh, uses common sense and a few simple treatments. Uh, in certain areas of the world, people still depend on local, quote, witch doctors or healers uh, to cure ailments. And uh, many of the plants and treatments they use are, they're effective, um, at least as a relief. Uh, as uh, many of the modern medications available and and a, a good many modern medications uh, were developed from refine, from refined um, herbal uh, treatments or medications. Uh, herbal medicine needs to be used with extreme care. Um, when you when you lack or have very limited medical supplies. Herbal medicines uh, are good stand-in, but they can be dangerous, and uh, they can cause fur further damage or even death. So like this, uh, the, the remedy for a gastrointestinal infection, uh, all four of these are, um, are detrimental to your health. Salt water imbibing, salt water is detrimental. Tobacco uh, imbibing, uh, Ingesting tobacco is detrimental, and of course kerosene is very detrimental. Hot peppers can cause all kinds of problems uh, in the blood pressure area for a person. So you you have to you have to use it carefully and uh, and um, you know good use good sense to prevent. Uh, further damage or um, further detrimental uh, effect to your health such that you're not able to continue your um, efforts to uh, reach a safe location for assistance. So one of the drawbacks to uh, herbal medicine is uh, not all plants are safe. There are poisonous plants. Um, 
So you need to uh, carefully identify plants and uh, note poisonous plants carefully uh, when you encounter them so that you recognize them in a you know an emergency situation sometimes they look like other plants uh, knowing poisonous plants is is as important as knowing edible plants and it helps you uh, avoid um, using poisonous plants for uh, medical purposes or for um, food So for poisonous plants, uh, knowing poisonous plants, it's uh, as important to a survivor as knowing edible plants. Uh, knowing and recognizing poisonous plants helps to avoid sustaining injury from them. Whether you use them for medicine or you use them for food, uh, you need to be able to recognize a poisonous from non-poisonous. Uh, plants generally poison by ingestion, when a person eats a part of a poisonous plant or contact when a person makes contact with a poisonous plant that causes any type of skin irritation or dermatitis or absorption or inhalation so when a person absorbs the poison through the skin or inhales it into the respiratory system plant poisoning ranges from minor irritation to death a common question might be uh, you know how poisonous is this plant and it's difficult to say uh, how poisonous plants are, how poisonous a plant might be. It's difficult to say how poisonous a plant might be. Uh, some plants require contact with a large amount of the plant before noticing any adverse reaction. Uh, others cause death with only a small amount. Uh, every plant varies in the amount of toxins it contains uh, due to a different growing condition and slight variations in subspecies and the soil that it's in and so on. Every person has a different level of resistance to toxic substances and some persons may be more sensitive to a particular plant than others. So um, it varies from person to person how poisonous a plant is. Some common misconceptions about poisonous plants are watch animals and eat what they eat. Most, most of the time that's true, but some animals eat plants that are poisonous to humans. Uh, another misconception is boil the plant in water and any poison will be removed. This is sometimes true, but boiling removes many poisons, not all of them. Um, and a third misconception, plants with a red color are poisonous. Some plants that are red are poisonous, but not all. But it is true that most plants that are poisonous do have some kind of indication in a certain way. If you know kind of what to look for, generally speaking, you can, you can kind of uh, sort poisonous or probably poisonous plants out of non-poisonous ones. No one rule aids in identifying poisonous plants across a spec, you know, across a group of plants, but uh, you have to make an effort to learn as much about plants as possible. Uh, it's it's to a person's benefit to learn about a plant and plants as a group. Um, poisonous plants can look like edible relatives or like other edible plants. So, for example, hemlock appears very similar to a wild carrot. A hemlock's very, very deadly. It doesn't take very much to eat of a hemlock to kill a person. Uh, and a wild carrot, you can eat as many as you want. Uh, you can eat the you can eat the fronds. You can eat the carrot part. 
Uh, certain plants are safe to eat in uh, certain seasons or stages of growth and poisonous in other stages. So the leaves of the pokeweed are edible when it first starts to grow, but it becomes poisonous after, after a certain point. Uh, you can eat some plants and their fruits only when they're ripe. So uh, right, uh, the ripe fruit of a May apple is edible, but all other parts and the green fruit are poisonous. Uh, some plants contain both edible and, and poisonous parts. Potatoes and tomatoes are common plant foods, but their green parts are poisonous. Um, <clears throat> common food we have that's poisonous is uh, beans, just regular legumes. Uh, if they're not cooked um, and you eat them raw, they can, they can kill you. Uh, some plants become toxic after wilting. So, for example, when uh, black cherry starts to wilt, uh, hydrocyanic acid develops. And the, of course, the hydrocyanic, that's a, that's a cyanide, a cyanic acid. Uh, that is deadly. Um, specific preparation methods make some plants edible that are poisonous raw. Uh, you can eat thinly sliced and thoroughly dried corn. Uh, drying can take a year of the jack-in-the-pulpit, uh, but they're poisonous if, you, if they're not thoroughly dried. So you have to learn to identify and use plants before a survival situation occurs. And then some sources of information about plants are pamphlets, books, films, nature trails, botanical gardens, local markets, local natives. Uh, sometimes you can just you see stuff on TV. Uh, you know, there's uh, comments about things or you note that somebody died of something. Um, you just have to pay attention. You can gather and cross-reference information from as many sources as possible. Uh, not all sources have all the same information, and and you're not going to get any one source that has all of the information necessary. So rules for avoiding poisonous plants. Uh, best policy uh, is to be able to look up a plant and identify it with absolute certainty and to know its uses or dangers. Uh, to be able to identify it without a reference is preferable. Uh, many times this is not possible if you have little or no knowledge of local vegetation. Uh, use the rules to of the universal edibility test. Um, take a small part and, and test it. Uh, if you can't wait 24 to 48 hours, wait 12 to 24 hours, um, and then you just you start with a little bit and then you eat a little bit more and then you eat the whole thing and wait and then you try cooking it and see if that works and so on. Uh, avoid all mushrooms. Mushroom identification is very difficult and uh, even more so within, than with other plants. Some mushrooms cause death very quickly and mushrooms have no known antidote. So two general types of mushroom poison are gastrointestinal and the central nervous system. Uh, the gastrointestinal is, uh, um, you can survive that. The central nervous system uh, is much more difficult to, to survive. Uh, contact with or touching plants unnecessarily. Uh, you also want to avoid contact with or touching plants unnecessarily. So contact dermatitis from plants. 
um, usually cause the most trouble in the field. Uh, effects can be persistent and spread by scratching and are particularly dangerous if there's contact in or around the eyes. Um, so nettles, uh, poison oak, poison ivy. Uh, principal toxin of the plants is usually an oil that gets on the skin upon contact with the plant. Uh, the oil can also get on equipment and then, on, then it infects whoever touches that equipment. Uh, don't burn a contact poisonous plant. Uh, the smoke can be poisonous and can be harmful. Uh, there's a greater danger of being affected when overheated and sweating. And infection can be local or it can spread all over the body. The, uh, the surface toxin infection on the skin. Uh, symptoms can take from a few hours to several days to appear. And signs or symptoms can include burning, reddening, itching, blisters, swelling. When you first contact the poisonous plant, or when the first symptoms appear, you want to try to remove the oil by washing with soap and cold water. Uh, if water is not available, wipe the skin repeatedly with dirt or sand. Uh, do not use dirt if blisters have developed. If uh, the dirt can break the blisters open, then leave the body open to infection and infect those same blisters. After you've removed the oil, dry the area. You can wash with a tannic acid solution and crush and rub jewelweed on the affected area to treat plant-caused rashes. And you can make tannic acid from oak bark. Uh, tannic acid is uh, makes a tea uh, that's a good... Um, disinfecting and uh, rinsing solution. Poisonous plants that cause contact dermatitis are cowhage, poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, ringus tree, trumpet vine. Uh, then there's ingest ingestion poisoning. Ingestion poisoning can be very serious. It leads to death very quickly. I do not eat any plant. Do not eat any plant unless you have positively identified it. Uh, keep a log of all plants eaten, if possible. Uh, the signs and symptoms of ingestion poisoning can include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal cramps, depressed heartbeat and respiration, headaches, hallucinations, dry mouth, unconsciousness, death, coma, death. Uh, if you suspect plant poisoning, try to remove the poisonous material from the victim's mouth or your mouth and stomach as soon as possible. I want to induce vomiting. You can tickle the back of your throat, or you can drink warm salt water. Um, there's a couple of others I'll try to go over later. You can you dilute the poison by administering large quantities of water or milk if the person's conscious or if you're conscious. Uh, the following plants that can cause ingestion poisoning. Uh, the castor bean, the china berry, uh, lantana, death camas, uh, man manchineel, oleander, uh, physic nut, pongee, poison and water hemlock, rosary pea, strychnine tree, and I'll try to go over some others uh, a little bit further on.